trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies, they're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, wrong thinkers, welcome to the show. I am happy to have my friend James R. Harrigan joining me. He's co-host of the Words and Numbers podcast. And I'm just going to warn you up front, James is a little bit cranky today. He has good reason. I am a little bit cranky today, and it's just going to come flying out of probably every orifice before long. How you doing, Brian? I actually like well. your theme song. I like your theme song a lot. Thank you. Thank you. And I, I, I don't wish anybody to be in conditions that make them cranky, but you are at your best when you are speaking freely and unrestrained. So I feel like this is, this is a golden opportunity for me to pick your brain. Well, sit, sit down and buckle up because here we are. Okay. So uh, I don't know if you heard, but uh, apparently Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away about a week ago. And um, well, a lot of people came apart at the seams. And I just wanted to get yeah. your take. I had no idea that this woman meant so much to so many people, but uh, people literally said, I stopped my car and cried for 30 minutes when I heard that she had died. What a bunch of, what a bunch of jack wagons. What's wrong with everybody? I mean, come on. You know, the, the thing, I, I have taught constitutional law many, many times uh, in my career as a professor, and I, and I would immediately ask all these people whining the hardest and signaling the hardest, how many of her decisions have you read? She's been on the court for a very long time. Please tell me those three that top the list for you in, in Ruth Bader Ginsburg's career uh, at the Supreme Court. And I, I would only ask that, of course, because we all know none, none of them have read any of them. So, so she's become kind of a cultural icon, but none, none of the people who have lionized her have any idea what she was all about. And, you know, they're a little hard to take seriously. And then you, you get the, the American left jumping off uh, one bandwagon and onto another. And what are they saying now? Oh, we're going to burn it down. I don't even know what the hell they're talking about, what it is, but they're going to burn it all down if the Republicans nominate somebody for the empty spot. Here's a newsflash for you. Of course, the Republicans are going to nominate somebody for that slot. Why? Because they think they might lose the, the, the White House real soon, and they're probably pretty sure they're going to lose the Senate pretty soon. So this has to happen before uh, the new president takes office, before January. This has to happen. So, you know, you should probably expect it to start happening roundabout right this second. And I think they'll have it probably buttoned up by the end of 2020. And if you think if if you think somebody would in power would do something else, you're a crazy person. I have to say, James, you, you seem to be taking this rather well. <laughs> you know, the, well, the whole part about uh, apparently apparently Ruth Bader's Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, didn't have as much direct impact on your life as, as yeah. some people have have, uh, have been led to believe she had on theirs. Yeah, no, that's right. And all the memes are making the rounds right now. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is responsible for every good thing that ever happened to women forever. Well, what a bunch of nonsense. What a bunch of nonsense. I will say this, though, because I actually like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, too. Um, and I really liked her public friendship with Antonin Scalia, 
which I thought was a, an incredibly beautiful thing. You don't have to agree with people to be their friends. And those two, those two people obviously thought the world of each other. And, you know, how many of us have friends right now to that depth? And you know, you're lucky if you get one friend like that in the course of a lifetime. And I think that's instructive, right? Because everybody's losing their minds right now because every damn thing has been politicized. Well, yeah, sure, the court matters. The composition of the court really matters. Why? Because they're going to have to rule on all the stupidity that we've gotten ourselves into over the last 50 years. Most of the things that we argue about in public aren't properly understood as um, under the purview of the federal government in the first place. So when we get a Supreme Court ruling on it, well, okay, but let's all take it with a grain of salt. Really, I think the cultural message that we got from her is the really great message, right? And she often spoke to um, female concerns. Do, do women have opportunities? And, and I think, you know, I'm a, I'm a father of two daughters. I'd love for them to hear those things, right? From a woman who scratched and clawed her way to the very top of her profession. Good for her. Right. And then I want them to see how she befriended a man who didn't believe a single thing that she thought was worthwhile. And yet they still wandered around together. I believe they went hunting once. Is this, you got to be kidding me. You got to be kidding me. And I think that's the lesson that she leaves us. It's not the legal lesson. It's the cultural one. Other human beings are worth your time. And if you look past your disagreements, you might find things of great value. I seem to remember Alexander Hamilton, I think it was in uh, Federalist 78, talked about how he, he told us, hey, don't sweat it. The, the federal yeah, courts are for- never going to be that big of a deal. It's never going to have that much authority or that much power. So you don't even really have, you don't have the sword. They don't have the purse. They're not a big deal. Yeah, but- he said it was the least dangerous branch. And yeah, about that. <laughs> That's, I, think, I think Hamilton was pretty well aware that that was incorrect as he wrote the words in 1787 in Federalist 78. And if you look to the anti-Federalist critics, they all jumped right on that. Everybody was talking about whether this was going to be a problem long term or not. And if you think about it, well, how could it not be a problem long term? Because we often refer to it as the court of last resort, and, and that's what it is. But if that court has the power of judicial review, and that was asserted by, by Marshall early on. Um, if it has the power of judicial review, and it does, sooner or later you're going to have to realize that the Supreme Court of the United States, an arm of the federal government, is going to decide what is appropriate for the federal government to do. And not surprising, the Supreme Court will inevitably and invariably decide that whatever the federal government wants to do is just fine. Yeah, I know, and, and that's... And, I, I studied Marbury versus Madison in school, didn't understand a thing. It wasn't until I was much older, like maybe four or five years ago, someone explained it to me in the sense that you have a, a creation of the Constitution, the Supreme Court, saying, hey, I'll tell the other parts of this creation what are legit and what aren't, and, and ex- basically asserting the same authority as if it were the creator. And I went, it's a beautiful plan. It's a beautiful plan. And I tried that crap with my wife early on in the marriage. But no, <laughs> where the rubber meets the road, here we're normal people. Where the great unwashed live, we don't get to behave like that. And there are all kinds of great reasons why we don't. Because in the end, if you're the judge and jury in a case that you are yourself interested in, you're going to have a problem. Because you will always find in favor of yourself. 
Yeah, well, it's like having the ability to rewrite the rules right in the middle of the game that you're playing. Oh, that doesn't seem to be going my way. Hang on a sec. We'll just uh, make a few adjustments. All right, here are the new rules, and away we go. And when the Supreme Court issues a ruling, it takes on the entire weight of the Constitution. So when when smart Alex like me refer to the Supreme Court as a roving constitutional convention, um, that's not terribly far off from the truth. The real the the problem with the truth is that they don't rove; <laughs> they stay they stay stationary as they reinterpret the Constitution. But as long as we've approached things like this. You, the, the stakes are going to be quite high at the level of the Supreme Court, higher than they were ever meant to be. And this is why people go to the mattresses, to use old mafia language, every time uh, it, it, it's time to nominate someone new. And you see the, the politics of personal destruction. And isn't that interesting, right? We saw it with Judge Bork. We saw it with Clarence Thomas. We certainly saw it just recently with Kavanaugh. And I could predict with 100% certainty we're going to see it again because this is how the left behaves because they understand how important this position is. And because they've had a bad time at holding the White House, they've had a worse time of holding the court. And that's why now they want to increase the numbers. We're, we're dealing with these silly um, pack the court plans like Roosevelt had once upon a time. It's not surprising, and they can do it. I think they will be deeply, deeply bothered by what the American people bring to their feet uh, if they do it. But Roosevelt was ready to do it, and he got smacked down by public opinion. And I think the same thing would happen now. The uh, Constitution does not specify how big the court must be. We can have as many or as few on there as the president and Senate decide uh, over time. But, you know, we seem to have settled in at nine, and I think it does us all well to just stay right there. Okay, we've got to take a break here in about 30 seconds, but I want to prep you for what I'd like to touch on when we come back. Um, You mentioned it earlier. Uh, People have come right out and publicly said, if this doesn't go our way, we got to burn this thing down. Now, pun intended, that's some pretty incendiary language, but I don't think I've ever heard people so bold or so public in saying that kind of stuff. So I want to get your reaction to how seriously should we take such uh, thundering pronouncements and is there something different this time around, or is this has this been done before? Have other people uh, rumbled and grumbled and essentially huffed and puffed and threatened to blow the house down? So we'll continue our conversation with James R. Harrigan, just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. We are talking with my friend James R. Harrigan, who is a co-host of the Words and Numbers podcast. If you haven't subscribed, well, I, I want you to... Uh, I want you to hold your hand up right alongside your, your head. Now slap yourself hard because <laughs> you're missing a great opportunity. And uh, James is here today just discussing some current events with me. Um, James, I I watched some of the, the violence over the last couple of days over the Breonna Taylor uh, situation in Louisville, Kentucky. And it seemed pretty clear to me, at least this is the conclusion I jumped to. It doesn't matter. 
It doesn't matter. If if the DA had brought the three police officers accused of uh, wrongfully killing this woman out and executed them personally on the steps of the courthouse, people still would have wanted to riot. And it just seems like there are a lot of people who are spoiling for a chance to, to go nuts. So when someone talks about, uh, let's burn it all down if we don't get our way, I find myself looking forward to election night less and less. What are your thoughts? Well, I never really look forward to election night, truth be told. Um, you know, I'm one of those political scientists who doesn't really think there's any great marvel in your voting. I personally don't care if you vote or not. But you can see something has, has changed over the past, oh, I don't know, six, eight months. Right. We've, we've become coarser and, and more difficult. And I think it tracks perfectly the, the covid shutdown. Right. So beginning in mid-March, when we all shut down and, and stopped going anywhere and doing the things that make us feel more human, it's no surprise that as time stretched after that point, we got more obnoxious with each other and it's just getting worse. Now, I think most of the most of the demonstrations that we've seen have been both unfortunate and foolish. Right. Some of the demonstrations that we've seen, I think, are perfectly understandable. And it's hard to, to paint with a broad brush here. Right. Because, you know, there's just too many little details that make a world of difference one to the next. But to jump to the one you wanted to talk about, right, the one where people are threatening violence, if we have the audacity to name a Supreme Court justice uh, in, in a vacancy, well, it's very hard to take these people seriously because these are all the same people. And I, I mean what I'm saying. I know what I'm saying here. These are all the same people who will complain about Republicans getting onto the Supreme Court and monkeying about with Roe versus Wade because, as they like to say so often, that's settled. That's settled law. Well, guess what else is settled law? nominating somebody to the Supreme Court when there's a vacancy. Oh, but that's not the kind of settled law they like. And and you, you see the hypocrisy that comes out here. And this is particularly true of the left. I find that I'm, I'm picking on the left quite a lot today. I promise to pick on the right sooner or later, maybe next week. Um, but for this, it, it's problematic. It's, it's emblematic, I would say, of the left to behave in this way. So really, what's the problem? And I'm, I'm going to go further and say, you know, this crap may be acceptable in a bunch of downtown areas in a major in America's major cities. But I saw a dude a couple of weeks ago saying we're coming to the suburbs and I'm going to have to advise him strongly not to do that because out in the suburbs, people are armed and they're not really willing to cotton to this kind of crap. Um, so I, I think we've got a couple of countervailing trends here, and it's going to be interesting to see where they all land. I suspect in the end, um, mayors of America's major cities are going to just say, all right, that's enough. We got to stop this. They don't want to. And I understand why they don't want to. I wouldn't want to either in their position, um, but it's going to have to happen sooner or later. And I think the threat of violence for a Supreme Court nomination can't hold anybody's attention, right? We have to ignore that because the seat is open. And if the people politically charged with filling the seat want to fill the seat, then they're going to be able to do that. And I, and I can hear the howls from the left already. Merrick Garland, Merrick Garland, Merrick Garland, it says in the, in the breeze, you know, Obama wanted him on the court, sent it off to the Senate where it promptly died. Well, no kidding, it promptly died. Why? Because the Republican Senate could kill it. 
that's not true now. And these are the realistic things you have to take into account. If I were Trump, I wouldn't be nominating a lunatic from the from the right. I'd be nominating somebody that's relatively straightforward, right? but kind of a middle of the road right winger. I don't suspect he's going to do that. And, and I suspect there will be a lot of gnashing of teeth and what have you, but that's fine. So I'm glad to hear somebody take a little more optimistic take like you, like you're saying here in that there, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of loud talk, but talk isn't always the same as action for the people who are taking action though. There, I, James, I feel bad for the police on the one hand, because, because right. I can see it would be very difficult, especially in some of these major metropolitan areas to be a cop and to have to stand there. I've seen the kind of abuse that the, that the demonstrators, and I'm being generous in calling them that, uh, are, are heaping and you know trying to provoke some kind of action so they can play victim. That would be really tough. Here's my quandary, though. At the same time, and it's not everywhere, but I see it still happening, I see police officers tasing and handcuffing a mom for not wearing a mask at her son's outside eighth grade football game. I see, uh, you know, police in Moscow, Idaho, arresting churchgoers for standing too close to other churchgoers out in the parking lot singing hymns. And I think, you guys don't get it. You know, <laughs> there, yeah, that, you know, people want true. to support you, but it's it's very hard to support you yeah, when you, you go out and enforce things like that. They're making it a little difficult, aren't they? I, I've said the same thing for about the last ten years, since the on since the. The, the oncoming of cell phones, since cell phones became ubiquitous, we have learned three things without doubt. Bigfoot is not among us. Not out there. Aliens are not landing with, with any particular speed or, 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 or purpose. And the police in the United States mistreat black people. I know these three things. Why? Because everybody in the country has a camera and they carry it around. And I see it day in, day out. Now, I'm not a fan of the police for these sorts of reasons, but I'll take it a step further. We hear constantly the rejoinder, well, a few bad apples. All right, fine. But why aren't those all those good apples washing them out, pointing them out? Why, why do they all march in lockstep by the end of the day? And it's very hard to win people back when it's been proven that that sort of thing happens a lot. And I'm not willing to sit here and say it's a majority of the, the time that this is what happens. It's not. But it happens often enough to be absolutely disgusting. And I don't know how you live with that if you're a police officer. Um, were I starting from scratch and designing a, a country, I, I wouldn't, of course. I would let somebody else do it and then just criticize them all the time. But if I were, if I were asked to start drawing up the rules, I would ask for a very simple rule to be implemented. Hold the police higher to, an, to every standard than you would hold regular citizens. Because when they have a gun, a badge, and a stick, they should be held to much higher standards. When they're asked to make sure that the rest of us follow the rules, we have to know that they follow the rules. And none of this is possible under the regime we've now got. And it's going to come back and bite us constantly. So someday, I, I hope for the best, but not today. There, I, I don't remember which jurisdiction. I just saw this story today, but um, there is at least one municipality that is considering, maybe it's a state, is considering a law that would require officers, if you see an officer acting out or acting beyond you know, what is appropriate, you have a duty to stop him as opposed to closing ranks. 
I'd love to see that happen. That law would work. I would too. But you can pass that law every day of the week. The real question is, is anybody going to follow it? And, you know, they always talk about that thin blue line. And the thin blue line takes care of itself quite a lot. So I don't know. I don't know if this is going to be helpful or not. Well, as long as I'm making a Christmas wish list, I'm going to go ahead and pencil pencil that one in just in case. (laughs) I'll put it on mine too. Tell everybody where they can find the uh, Words and Numbers podcast. Oh, you can just head over to wordsandnumbers.org, just spelled out exactly like it sounds. You can find me on Twitter as at James R. Harrigan, H-A-R-R-I-G-A-N, and you can hound me there for whatever it is you want to hound me for. But I guess that's about it, isn't it? Maybe I'll be back here some one of these days and we could talk again. Okay, I look forward to it. Thank you so much. Take care, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I don't spend a whole lot of time talking about the election. I spent some time talking about what the uh, likely outcome of the election is going to be in terms of you know society coming apart at the seams, but don't spend a, t- a ton of time discussing the election and you know what's what's at stake there. But I came across a column earlier this morning on LewRockwell.com from Pat Buchanan, and if you want to get that uh, you know that zoomed out from thirty thousand foot view of what is really at stake, Pat Buchanan has a pretty solid take here. And it's interesting because he says all the chips are on the table now. Here's what he means. He starts with a quote from Joe Biden. As everyone knows, I made it clear that my first choice for the Supreme Court will make history as the first African-American woman justice. And Pat Buchanan says, so Joe Biden promised. Since the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, however, Biden has refused to produce a list of black female judges and scholars whom he would consider for the now vacant seat. So what's his problem? See, Donald Trump had no such reluctance. In 2016, he listed a slew of candidates from among whom he promised to pick his judges. And by the way, true to his word, Trump elevated federal appellate court judges Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh. Since the Kavanaugh confirmation, Judge Amy Coney Barrett has been openly discussed as a potential Trump choice to succeed liberal icon Ginsburg. And Buchanan asks, why is Biden so reluctant to reveal some highly qualified black female judges? His refusal suggests that the kind of high court judges that America wants is not the liberals' issue. It's Trump's issue. So the president will announce his choice on Saturday after the morning period for Ginsburg is over. Mitch McConnell's Senate is expected to confirm the new justice in late October. Now, Pat Buchanan says, with the court's ideological balance at stake, the the battle from now to November 3rd is thus for all the marbles. Control of the House, the Senate, the presidency, and the U.S. Supreme Court. He says, rarely has there been been an election in which the stakes were so high. The ideological gulf is so great and the outcome in such doubt. You know, for all the times we've heard, oh, this is the most important election of our lifetime. I'm starting to wonder if maybe, just maybe, this time there might be some truth to that. 
Now, Pat Buchanan says the polls show Biden ahead, but the Democrats are visibly nervous of greatest concern, the possibility that Tuesday night Biden in the first debate with his verbal and mental lapses occurring frequently now could kick it all away in front of millions of voters. On the court issue, Democrats are exhibiting something akin to panic. They're warning that if a conservative jurist like Barrett is confirmed, Democrats may retaliate by packing the Supreme Court. Increasing the number of justices from 9 to 11 and installing two new liberals if they win the presidency and the Senate. If a Scalia constitutionalist is nominated and confirmed this year, says Senator Chuck Schumer, nothing is off the table next year. Other Democrats are threatening to pack the Senate by granting statehood to D.C. and Puerto Rico. This would add four new Democratic senators and formally convert the United States into a bilingual nation. Nancy Pelosi has threatened a new impeachment of the president if he appoints a new justice to fill Ginsburg's seat. Yet this is what Article 2 of the Constitution directs Trump to do. Activists are talking about burning down the system, and given what we've witnessed in Portland, Seattle, Minneapolis, and Louisville, the BLM crowd and its media camp followers should be taken seriously. Should Democrats win the Senate and White House, they will face only one obstacle to imposing the Biden-Bernie socialist AOC agenda on the nation. Only the filibuster, the ability of a Senate minority through extended debate to delay and occasionally frustrate the will of the majority, would stand in the way of their, of their turning their radical agenda into law, as LBJ did with his massive majorities in 1969. Now, this is no idle threat. 1965, by the way. Sorry. (laughs) Bad eyes. This is no idle threat, says Pat Buchanan. Even Barack Obama is calling for abolition of the filibuster, stripping a Republican Senate minority of its last weapon of resistance in the world's greatest deliberative body. He says another danger facing the GOP is its demographic demise if it fails to control immigration. He says, currently, white folks who produce the vast majority of GOP votes are 60% of the nation. The black population is 12 to 13%, Hispanics 18%, Asian Americans 7%. He describes the GOP demographic crisis like this. The white population is steadily diminishing as a share of the electorate. Hispanics and Asians who vote 2 to 1 Democratic in presidential elections are the fastest growing minorities and are being fed by the largest streams of migration. A few years hence, the GOP will face the fate it failed to avert in California. Once the Golden State was Nixon and Reagan country, as those two Republicans carried California on all seven presidential tickets on which they ran from 1952 to 1984. Moreover, former red states such as Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, and Arizona are now swing states. And Texas is trending that way too. But he says Democrats too have a white folks problem. At the party's apex are Speaker Pelosi and Majority Whip Steny Hoyer, both octogenarian white folks. Senate Minority Leader Schumer and Minority Whip Dick Durbin are white septuagenarians. Presidential nominee Joe Biden is a 77-year-old white man who would be older than our oldest president, Ronald Reagan, was the day he left office. Wow, that puts things in perspective. And he says the last white man appointed to the Supreme Court by a Democratic president was Stephen Breyer back in 1994. And at age 82, he is now the oldest justice serving. Bottom line is the days of white liberals dominating the rising party of America's people of color may be over this decade. So says Pat Buchanan. Well, that's an interesting take.
I'm going to shift gears now. Let's talk about uh, voting in this year's general election. I don't know how many times you have heard, you know, people talk about, hey, we have to be the adults in the room. And Thomas L. Knapp, in a piece published on everythingvoluntary.com, begs to differ. His essay is titled, Unfortunately, Voters Aren't the Adults in the Room. And I love it because there's a, there's a nice picture there of a, a person chanting at a demonstration holding a sign. It's probably a Photoshop, but it says, It's my choice to be a stupid voter. <laughs> okay, here's his take. He says, On Election Day 1976, I was eight days away from being 10 years old. As my morning school bus passed the lone polling place in my tiny town, I leaned out the window and yelled at the top of my lungs, Vote for Carter! Now, he says, I had three reasons for supporting Jimmy Carter. I'd like to think the biggest one was that I had actually read and agreed with his campaign book, Why Not the Best? Yes, really. I somehow had scraped up a couple of dollars change to buy a paperback no normal nine-year-old would ever have been interested in, but realistically, the other two reasons were far more compelling. First, Gerald Ford was bald. Yes, he says, I was just that petty. Second, a couple of years before... I had turned on the TV before school to find Captain Kangaroo preempted by coverage of Richard Nixon's resignation, permanently poisoning my mind against Tricky Dick and anyone associated with him. No, he says, I didn't really understand the issues at play or the policy differences between the two candidates or what the heck Watergate was. Did I mention I was nine years old? But he says, looking at the election-related discourse in America today, I'm unfortunately not seeing as much logic or reason out of the political establishment than nine-year-old me was able to muster 44 years ago. Donald Trump and the Republican Party want me to know that Joe Biden has been captured by the radical left. He says, last time I checked, Biden was the candidate of the center-right Democratic Party. If there's a left in American electoral politics, it's the Green Party. If there's a radical left, it's the Libertarian Party. That's an interesting take. Biden, he says, I'm told, would defund police and offer amnesty to millions of undocumented immigrants. Both of those are libertarian positions, which he doesn't, sadly, seem to actually hold. He says, Joe Biden and the Democratic Party want me to know that Donald Trump colluded with Vladimir Putin to rig the 2016 election, a claim for which no credible evidence has emerged after four years of investigations. And they're trying to do it again. Ditto on the evidence that uh, Trump allowed COVID-19 to ravage the country. Now, he thankfully has constitutionally limited powers to do much about that, but he's exceeded those powers in the same ways, although not as much as Biden promises to. And he may be actually Hitler. You get the point. Thomas L. Knapp says, even more unfortunately, I hear friends and relatives regurgitate both sets of nonsensical pablum as they metaphorically lean out of the school bus window to yell, vote for, insert name of terrible candidate here. And worst of all, their school buses stop at the polling places and let them off to vote. H.L. Mencken said, democracy is the theory that the common people know what they want and deserve to get it, good and hard. Now, on the evidence, he wasn't wrong. Of those Americans who bother to vote, 90% or more will probably vote for one of the two circus clowns for all of the wrong reasons. But he says, if you plan to vote this November, please consider growing up first. Yikes. Kind of stings, doesn't it? Now, I'm, I'm going to put my own spin on this and you know take it for what it's worth, but I hope I'm not putting words in the mouth of Thomas Knapp. But the idea is if you show up at the voting place and you're standing there in the voting booth... Just looking over the names and going, okay, which one of these gives me the warm fuzzies? Which one looks most familiar? But you don't actually know anything about their particular policies? Yeah, you're 
you're not being a well-informed voter. Might want to work on understanding some of those things before you find yourself standing there deciding which name to, to hit. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. I do want to mention that I have some great sponsors that are worthy of your attention. For instance, I'd like to give a shout out to the uh, Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. That would be my friend John Staples, his lovely wife Heather, and their amazing team of mortgage experts. If you are looking to uh, purchase a home and you need a mortgage, you want to get pre-qualified, that's a great feeling to know, hey, look, we're qualified up to this amount, and then go home shopping. These are the folks you need to help uh, help you get there. Now, the uh, Patriot Home Mortgage story is a, is a wonderful success story. They started in St. George, Utah, started small, but now they're 23 states strong. The, the bottom line is they have the resources, they have the experience, and, and with John Staples there, uh, you have somebody who is willing to go to the mat for you to make sure that uh, you are being taken care of at every turn. Go to staplesmortgage.com, again, staplesmortgage.com, and if you need a new home loan, if you need to refinance your existing mortgage, count on my friends at the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. And be sure to tell them thank you for sponsoring the show as uh, as you uh, do business with them. So one of the things that uh, I have uh, really longed for is the day when the truth actually starts to break through. And I'm going to share a clip with you here that illustrates it's beginning to happen. And I'm talking about the truth about COVID-19. I've got a couple of stories here that I want to share that, uh, that one of them illustrates that, uh, yes, it's becoming undeniable as far as lockdowns go. They are not all that they were cracked up to be. I don't know why certain you know, officials and authorities believe, well, we just got to double down on this and, and, and go even harder. I'll share the second story, which is from the New York Post, which says uh, COVID-19 may be mutating. That's why masks don't work. That's why hand washing and social distancing isn't working. See, there's some authorities who just flat out can't admit maybe none of that was going to stop the virus in the first place. Maybe it might slow it down a bit, but you can't hide from the virus. This is going to be their excuse. They're out. But first, I want you to hear Florida Governor uh, Ron DeSantis asking some questions of Dr. Martin Koldorf about the efficacy of lockdowns during the COVID-19 pandemic. This is about a three-minute clip, but listen to what Dr. Koldorf has to say. Very, very revealing. What can we say about the the efficacy uh, of these lockdowns? I noticed Peru had one of the most severe lockdowns, and I think they're number one in the world for per capita mortality. Uh, There were some other countries that that did um, very little in that way who have significantly less mortality. Um, So how would you analyze how the role that the lockdowns have played and, um, you know, have they shown to be able uh, to really reduce deaths uh, in the disease? Or is this just something that they're pushing the infections out over a longer period of time? Yeah, so back in March, uh, it made sense to flatten the curve because we don't want to overburden the hospitals. And I think uh, that was a success in most parts of the world, except I think Spain and Northern Italy. Uh, But uh, if you 
if you do a lockdown beyond that, you're sort of pushing the cases in the future. And uh, instead of sort of doing a lockdown that's general for the whole population, that doesn't make sense from a public health perspective. So instead what Dr. Bhattacharya said is that we have an enormous difference in risk by age. So everybody can get infected. And, uh, but the risk for mortality is a more than a thousand fold different risk for, for the oldest people versus the younger. So for the older people, this is worse than the annual flu, but for children, this is much milder than the annual flu. Uh, normally we have a few hundred deaths of uh, uh, children dying from, from the flu every year. Uh, and that's much less here. And even in a country like Sweden, where they never closed the schools, uh, all daycare and schools in Sweden was open from age one to 15 throughout the height of the pandemic there. And among the 1.8 million children in Sweden, there were exactly zero deaths from COVID-19. So this is not a dangerous thing for children nor for younger adults. So from a public health perspective, what makes sense is you, we have to do as, as well as we can and a lot better than what was done previously in, in many parts of the world to protect the elderly, uh, both at nursing homes, but also uh, people who live at home or people who uh, uh, live in multi-generation families. So we have to do as much as we can to protect those high-risk groups, but children and young adults, they should be able to live lives uh, uh, normally, uh, more or less. They should wash their hands and those kind of things, but uh, there's no uh, public health reasons to close schools. Uh, and uh, I think these sort of general lockdowns of closing schools or closing uh, uh, restaurants or closing beaches or whatever, they uh, that actually have a detrimental effect on public health. Okay, that was uh, again Dr. Martin Koldorf talking about the efficacy of lockdowns during the COVID nineteen pandemic. I know it was kind of hard to understand. That wasn't the greatest quality audio, but he was being questioned by Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida. Did you not hear him clearly state, really? For, the, for people who are not in that high-risk category, meaning people who are under 70 years of age, people who don't have diabetes, heart disease, lung disease, that sort of stuff, the people who don't have those high-risk factors, the best thing to do is to go about life normally. I mean, it's I know it's one tiny drop of truth in an ocean of misinformation and fear, but there it is. It's finally starting to get through. Jeffrey Tucker shared this on uh, Twitter earlier today and, and just noted this is huge and important. The truth is breaking through. So what does that mean for you and me? Well, I guess it depends. This, for some people, this is just the hill they, they will not want to die on. And maybe I'm wrong for, for spending so much time talking about it. But I have this perception that what is happening with COVID-19 is being used as a wedge or, or maybe even a lever to pry us away from our liberties. That fear of this unseen virus, that fear that there's something going on here and you can't see it. You just have to take our word that we have to do all of these draconian things. It's, uh, it's being very effective, unfortunately. It's, it's incredibly effective at making people give up things that they will not get back easily, if ever. 
So my advice is, this is why you and I need to be informed. We need to speak the truth as best we can. Look, I'm, I'm not a COVID-19 expert. The only place where I'm going to claim any expertise is I have a very strong sense and I have a pretty solid understanding of what my natural rights are. And I have a willingness to defend them. I'm willing to claim them. I'm willing to use them. I'm willing to defend them. And I'm urging you to do the same thing. You don't have to be an immunologist. You don't have to be, you know, an infectious disease specialist. All you have to be able to do is to to determine, is government acting within its proper limited role, or is it acting beyond the delegated authority that we the people have given it? Once you know that, it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat, doesn't matter if you're Republican, Libertarian, whatever. If you can understand what the, that your rights, your natural rights, are what limit government's power over you, that's the beginning. But that's also kind of a tall order, and a lot of people really haven't been willing to pay the price. They, they can't tell you. Well, how, how has our understanding of human rights and natural rights evolved over the centuries? And, and to put that into perspective, here's what I mean. I believe these rights have always existed. I think they're eternal in nature. In fact, I think there's a divine component. I'll just put that on the table. Yes, I believe that God is the source of our most important rights, self-determination and autonomy. But that wasn't always understood. And if you look at historically, how many people have actually lived in conditions where they had authentic freedom? It's been extremely rare throughout human history. The rule has been most people have been under the influence of some despot or another, or they've been under somebody else's rule where essentially they were either serfs or slaves or in some degree of bondage. Very few people have actually lived under authentic liberty. And of those who have, the ones that manage to keep it for any length of time are even more rare. Dr. Harold Pease describes liberty as almost like a butterfly in that uh, you, you have to be a steady and stable and understanding person to get one to land on you. And when it lands, if you do something that is uh, you know alarming to it, it's not going to stick around. Liberty is the same way. It only stays with those who are qualified for it. And that doesn't mean you have to have a particular religious belief. It doesn't mean that you have to belong to a particular party. You just have to understand what the principles and practices are that allow liberty to exist. And then you have to be willing to live up to them, even during scary times, say when there's a pandemic going on. That's the time right now where we need to be those kind of people. Let's be that kind of person. Let's shine a light in the dark. This is The Brian Hyde Show.